Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The Passover Lamb by Pastor Liz Rod. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave up all the trappings of heaven, the kingdom, the kingship in heaven to come down and just be one of us for a time. Emmanuel, God with us so that you could show us how you experienced our life. And yet, and yet, you remained sinless, blemish-free. You remained that perfect and wonderful uh, Passover lamb that was our Passover lamb. And so this morning, as we look to the book of Exodus, Lord, I just ask that you would show us that the book of Exodus is really our story too. Because, Lord, we are those who Jesus has delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into that glorious place where we can come before you in the Holy of Holies, where once we couldn't go, now we can, but only because Jesus has made the way. So we acknowledge that he is the one that we honour here in this household. He is the one we give our thanks to and our praise and our worship. And we thank you, Lord, that today, let everything we do, let every heart have Jesus on the throne. Let, let him be the one that guides us, that teaches us through the gift of the Holy Spirit, one just like him that we have been blessed with. And today, as we open the word, Lord, I pray that you would give me the words that you would have imparted to your people, because you are our God. Amen. If you'll indulge me just for a moment, I'd like us to pray for Daryl Knopfling. I heard this morning that uh, Daryl has had to go to hospital. Daryl's got a bit of a health uh, battle on his hand at the moment, um, and you may know, or some of you may, but can we just bow our head and pray for our wonderful brother in Christ? His wife's away at the moment um, in Japan, so I'm sure too we might need to pray for Sonia because she's half a world away. Okay, Lord, you know, you've heard, you knew long before I even got the text this morning that one of your special sheep, your, one of your children, has got a battle going on. And Lord, we just pray that as Daryl has gone to hospital, that in this moment that he would be uh, able to get the medical help that he needs. But above all, Lord, we pray that you would be with him, that you would be the one who would just uh, be there to give him your peace that divine peace that comes from knowing that you are the one who has him in your hands. And we just stand with him in faith, in love, and just uh, intercede on his behalf that he may be back with us very shortly and able to come back and give us a wonderful testimony of your goodness. Amen. Okay. All right. I seem to have got myself tangled up here. Ladies' accessories and microphones, hey? Sean doesn't have that problem. And, and Rob, wherever you are, I thank you so much for that wonderful slide. Uh, no kale, no cats and no fishing, hey? What a perfect Sunday. All right, well, yeah, as I said, uh, today we're going to talk about the Passover lamb. You know, this was a, an amazing time in history. Uh, you know, here we are barely into the second book of the Bible and God's people find themselves in a really unenviable place. You know, they, they have gone in, we'll do a little bit of, uh, you know, how, when and why and how, all that sort of thing, just to a little bit of background, just to explain how they ended up 
really needing this Passover lamb. Uh, yeah, as we know, uh, when Joseph uh, went to uh, be, be a slave in Egypt, that's how he was. He was a slave. But before too long, because God's hand was on him, he rose to a place of being the second most important man in Egypt, which was a very, very powerful country. If we think of Rome in Jesus' time and the Roman Empire, Egypt was probably the equivalent in the time of Joseph. And so we see Joseph rise up. We know that there's a famine in the land of Canaan where all of Joseph's family are, his brothers, the the nice guys that, you know, put him in a pit and then sold him, which, you know, they did reconsider about killing him. I suppose that's, you know, a, a step up, isn't it? But, you know, as I said, we see Joseph and all of a sudden we see 70 people come into the land of Egypt Well, before too long, about 430 years, not long at all, Um, you know, for those of you who are planning to have a long life, you could aim for that. But, you know, when Joseph dies, naturally, the Pharaoh who gave Joseph favour is also long gone too. But the people have multiplied and God had told them that they would. If we look back in Genesis, if we go back around Genesis 15, 16 and 17, you'll find that there are some very, very definite promises where God says, I will, I will, I will. Now, we don't mess with that because when God says he will, if I say to you, I will remember to you, you, I have to, you know, write it down somewhere because I'm probably going to forget. But um, I, it's not, not through lack of trying, I promise. But, you know, it, it, when God says, I will... He is going to do it. But it may not be in the space of time that we would imagine. And so here we go, three, 430 years later, the Israelites find themselves going from being welcome migrants who have come into the land of Egypt to having a pharaoh who looks and he's really alarmed at the numbers. He's looking at them because like every great nation, there's always someone wanting to topple you. And so with other countries like the Ethiopians, just to name one, he's concerned that because these people are now enslaved, that they're not going to have any great love for the Egyptians. And so if they were tapped, they're a potential security risk. You know, we hear that word bandied around quite a bit in our modern day world, a security risk. But they are. They're a big, big risk to him. And, you know, by the time they actually are taken out of Egypt, there's something like 600,000 men and then women and children as well. Not to mention a few other people that have seen the power of God and probably decide to straggle along because it says they're a mixed multitude when they leave. So that would lead me to believe that we're going to see a variety of people who have just thought this, this God's really fair income. When he does say, I will, he is going to do it. So let's just have a quick look. Um, you know, the, the, they were reduced to severe slavery. You know, I, I like to set the scene because it's good to know where the people were actually situated in time at that moment. You know, Pharaoh is really sort of ramping everything up. And, you know, we, we hear the word genocide. We think it's a fairly modern world uh, history word. But really, already we see Pharaoh just starting to just gently and subtly try to get rid of the growing population. And so what we see is, you know, that he starts to say to the midwives, if a boy baby is born, a Hebrew baby boy, uh, you know, get rid of him, snuff him out. 
But of course, you know, what he forgets is that these uh, midwives are actually more scared of God or more in awe of God is probably a better way to put it. And they're, they're not going to do that. And so they let them live. And so the multiplication just keeps going up and up and up and up. The next thing he says is that they be cast into the river. Now, we might think, you know, that, you know, that's awful in itself and that they're going to drown. But the Nile River is full of crocodiles. So, in essence, because one of the gods that the Egyptians worship is a crocodile god, if you like, because the Nile is so important to them, that, you know, those poor little baby boys were probably eaten. This isn't the sort of stuff I could teach in Sunday school, I might add. You know, we love all the Exodus stories um, and coming out of, uh, uh, you know, looking after little people, three to six-year-olds, you know, by the time we get to slitting lambs' throats and talking about some of the vicious stuff, you usually leave out the details. They love things like cutting the giant's head off and all that sort of thing. That really appeals to their ghoulish little hearts. But there are some sensitivities and some delicacies that you don't usually raise with in Sunday school. So, you know, we see this happening. And, you know, as I said, 430 years. In Exodus 12, 40, it tells us that that's how long they were there. But a lot happens before God decides to actually take them. That sounds bad, to take them out. (laughs) But, you know, but Exodus, Exodus actually means a departure. It means an exit. That's all it means. And so God was really planning to do this. Can I take you back just a little, if you don't mind, and I'll take you back to the scripture where God actually proposes to do this back in Genesis. And it's uh, Genesis 15, 13. And God said to Abraham, no positively, in other words, no doubt about this, that your descendants will be strangers dwelling in as temporary residents in a land that is not theirs, and they will be slaves there and be afflicted and oppressed for 400 years. And this, of course, is what we're seeing the fulfilment of. God always knows. You know, we think we tell him things when we pray. Or, you know, we might like to give him a little a gentle nudge, but there's nothing he doesn't know well in advance. And he knew that the people were going to go there. And But this is the good news clause now. In verse 14, he says, but I will, and here's one of his I wills, bring judgment on that nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Now, as we move through, and we're finally going to land in Exodus 12 today. But, you know, we know that they needed a deliverer. Every group who's going to do something really out of character, if you like, they need a leader. So they needed a deliverer. And, uh, and of course, Moses, as we know, is that deliverer. We, you know, again, you know, in Sunday school, we've taught about, about the burning bush, you know, and that appeals to the kids too, you know, something that doesn't burn out. They like all these stories. But, you know, what, what God was doing, he was trying to get Moses' attention. Moses is, has a privileged upbringing for the first 40 years of his life. As we know, um, I'm not telling you anything new, uh, that, you know, he kills the Egyptian who he sees beating one of the Hebrew slaves. He hears that, you know, Pharaoh is going to come and get him because he can't do that. He's, in essence, Moses has swapped sides, if you like. He's gone from being part of the, uh, the Egyptian Pharaoh 
group over to shifting his allegiance, if you like, by killing this this uh, overseer. And so he decides he's going to take off to the Midian. And again, you know, I love the fact that God's not in a hurry. So here we have Moses, 40 years in Egypt, being raised up with all the pomp and ceremony. He would have lived in palaces. He would have had all the, the trappings of being raised to be a pharaoh, really, in essence. But all of a sudden, here he is having to run for his life and head into the Midian Desert. Now, he doesn't know what that's going to do. He doesn't know how he's going to manage from that point onwards, but God does. And so we know the story where he's there and he sort of helps the uh, the women at the well. And all of a sudden, his father-in-law-to-be, Jethro or Ruel in Hebrew, says, you know, come and be with us. And so for 40 years, he's at the backside of the Midian, you know, getting greater qualifications than he ever got in Egypt because he's learning to be in the solitude where God can really speak to him. And that's what he does through the burning bush. He's going to start to actually show this man who he wants to be his representative, his deliverer of his people. He's going to show him who he is. And, you know, this morning we mentioned, you know, Yahweh in one of our songs. And and this is the thing, you know, God will say to Moses in Exodus 3.14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am and what I am. And I will be what I will be. And he said, and you shall say this to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, you imagine these people, you know, there's lots of them. They've been away from, if you like, from where God can really speak to them. They're in oppression. They're in affliction. You know, um, Pharaoh's sort of ramping up the... The, uh, the oppression all the time. He's making it harder and harder for them because on one hand, he wants slaves, but on the other hand, he doesn't want them to keep growing in numbers because they're a threat to his power. And so we move through Exodus fairly quickly and we'll see, you know, and, and I think, you know, Sean touched on this some weeks ago. Uh, by the time we're in Exodus 5 and, you know, Moses has actually come back into Egypt He's come back equipped with a, a few little miracles, like God gives him a few party tricks. He can show the, the elders so that they can establish that he is coming in the authority of God. So, you know, things like the, uh, the rod, throwing it down and it becomes a serpent and then picking it up and it, of course, goes back. That would be my worst nightmare. God, please don't ever ask me to do that. But, you know, uh, the next thing, you know, the leprous hand, he tells him to put his hand in his jacket and out it comes with this horrible leprosy that, you know, in ancient times, that was a death sentence. Everybody knew you were a goner, but all of a sudden he can change that back. And then, of course, he has, you know, the big one, which later on will be one of the plagues of Egypt, Uh, the fact that he can actually take water and pour it out and it becomes blood. So, you know, God gives him, if you like, a a, a set of miracles where he can actually go and impress upon the elders of Israel and the people that he is actually being sent by God. And so we move on. But, of course, Pharaoh's not as impressed about, you know, Moses. Like, you know, here you are, somebody that I know about but I don't know. You run away to the Midian, you come back and you say, all of a sudden you're saying to me, let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, I don't think so. 
He's not really keen to do that. Why should I? If I lose my, um, my force, my workforce, he's building great cities at Ramses. You know, things like that. If, it, you know, the Egyptians aren't going to want to get out there and make bricks. And so, you know, he's, he's in this dilemma. But this is what he says. And he's in uh, Exodus 5, 2, he says, Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And as we know, and as we're leading up to that final plague that is the really deciding moment for Pharaoh, we know that God keeps just stepping up the plagues. You know, we have things like the, the Nile being turned to blood. And as I've said, they rely on it. There's very little rainfall. If you come back to a geographical um, sort of fact, Israel, uh, sorry, Egypt has very little rainfall. They depend on the river. It is actually their lifeblood, if you like, and which is sort of rather coincidental that God decides to turn it into blood. And so, you know, Pastor Sean, we were talking about this on Wednesday. I said the plague of frogs would do it for me. I'm not not a fan of reptiles. But, you know, uh, he said, well, once the fish died, that'd be it for him. Uh, You know, so, you know, as I said, which actually goes to show I would have hung out for one more plague, wouldn't I? I'll remind him of that. I'll remind him of that when I see him next. But, you know, the thing is, each of these, not only did God ramp up, the unpleasantness, if you like, of the plague till it becomes absolutely unbearable. But he also hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, why would he do that? You know, that's crazy, isn't it? You know, if you want your people released, why would you do that? But God's got a bigger agenda. Yes, he wants to send his people back into the land of Cain and he wants to bring them back into the promises that he's made to Abraham about making them a great nation, about giving them the land, the the promised land. But more than that, he also wants to show that he is God. You know, the Egyptians, like many ancient cultures, had many gods. They had a god for everything. You name it, you know, probably a god for the bathtub, a god for washing your toenails, I don't know. But they had a god for so many things. And so what he is doing in sending these plagues, he's dismantling the power that the Egyptians see in their god. Now, Pharaoh thinks he can outsmart God. So as with each successive, and I mean, you know, God is very fair. Each time that Moses goes to him, he says, if you don't let my people go, and I'm paraphrasing here, this is what's going to happen. And Pharaoh has a choice, like we all do. God gives us choices, doesn't he? And we don't always listen. But the thing is, all of a sudden, you know, with every instance, uh, Pharaoh just digs in his heels. He is a stubborn man. And all of a sudden, we see that God says, well, I gave you fair warning. I said I will, and I'm going to. And so we have gnats. We have biting flies. We see livestock dying. Boils. Has anyone ever had boils? Very unpleasant. You know, all this sort of thing. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. You know, what isn't wiped out by the locusts when they come, God has, sorry, the hail and the fire that he sends in one of the plagues, the locusts come back and clean it out. So if you were looking at this from a financial point of view and a sustenance point of view, God has literally undone not only the agricultural system that they relied on, but their supply lines. 
And, you know, every army throughout history has always looked at cutting off the supply lines to their enemy. And so God is really just with every step and he's showing his supremacy because Pharaoh's got some magicians, some sorcerers, whatever, and he brings them out. But all they can do is duplicate what God's done. They can't undo it. It's only when Pharaoh starts to renege and we know he's a fibber, isn't he? He is a fibber because sometimes he says he'll renege or concede a little But all of a sudden, you know, changes his mind. As soon as God withdraws whatever the unpleasant thing is, but the consequences remain. And, you know, for you and I, that's sin, isn't it? You know, none of us like that word. It's probably the ugliest three syllables. We probably try and make another word out of it, but it doesn't work very well. Uh, You know, but it is true. You know, God will forgive us our sins. God will deliver us from the power of sin. But sometimes, or is it just me? You've had to wear the consequences of what you might have done or thought or whatever, said, whatever. So, as I said, we keep seeing this increase. By the time we get to, and we're coming up to where we're headed, uh, to the last plague. And this one is going to be really, really significant because where the uh, people of Israel have been spared thus far from the unpleasantness All of a sudden, this one's for everybody. And this is where we're heading towards the fact that we all have a debt to pay and uh, to pay for. Uh, You know, if you want to go back to Genesis, that was the most expensive piece of fruit in the history of mankind that was ever consumed. Because with it came a debt for all mankind that we all share. And there was only one way that that debt could be paid. Now, we're going to see in a a moment when we start to look at Exodus 12 with this final plague, where the plague that takes out the firstborn, that all of a sudden God is saying to the Israelites, you're going to have to do what I tell you or you're going to suffer the same consequences. Because the Israelites, like you and I, weren't any better or worse. And God is no respecter of persons. He looks at us all as individuals. He's made some of us quirkier than others. And Pauline, thank you for that title for me. She tells me I'm quirky. So, you know, as I said, I'll wear that. But, you know, the whole thing is, you know, God is looking at the people and he wants to give them a covering, a protection from what is coming. And so if you've got your Bibles open or your devices, whatever, let's just have a look at at, uh, Exodus 11 before we move into the actual Passover. Then the Lord said to Moses, yet will I bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go. When he lets you go from here, he will thrust you out altogether. In other words, he won't be able to get you out fast enough. This is it. This is the final blow. This is when it's going to be happened. And so that would say to me, be ready. Be ready. And so uh, verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man solicit and ask of his neighbour and every woman of her neighbour jewels, silver and uh, jewels of gold. And some say, uh, some translations say, and clothing. And remember back when we looked at Genesis 15, he said they were going to go out. In, in, in essence, they're going to plunder 
the the Egyptians. And so we're moving through. Uh, let's come down to verse 5 because this is where it really gets to the... Oh, sorry, verse 4. And Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will, here's an I will again, go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land, and because uh, I've got my amplified open at the moment, the pride, the hope and the joy of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of beasts. So that's going to really put a dent, isn't it? Because in ancient times, your firstborn son particularly was, that was your lineage. That was, that was the one you were relying on. And can I tell you too, something I uh, learnt this week as I was looking at ancient cultures, and the thing is, even back in Abraham's day, it wouldn't have been uncommon that if you had a debt to pay, if you had wronged someone, broken a contract, broken your word, whatever it may be, they could actually claim your firstborn son as payment. There's a debt, if you like, that needs to be paid. And we're going to come to that in just a moment. So, uh, it goes on in verse 6 to say, There shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as never been, nor ever shall be again. Verse 7, But against any of the Israelites shall not so much a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and Israel. Now, if he's going to bring that same plight on everyone... How is he going to do that? Read on. Let's read on. So by the time we get down to Exodus 12, and we'll move quickly now, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be to you the beginning of months and the first month of the year to you. Now God's in essence saying, we're going to start again. You and I are going to start again. I'm going to give you a new calendar uh, these, these are just clues, and I dare say that they were probably too subtle for some. Tell the congregation of Israel, on the tenth day of this month, they shall take every man a lamb or kid, according to the size of the family, for which is he, he is the father, a lamb or a kid for each house. In other words, every single one of you is going to need to do this. And there will be consequences if they don't. There will be no distinction between Israel and Egypt. And if the household is too small to consume the lamb, let him and his next door neighbour take it according to the number of persons. Every man according to what each can eat shall make your count for the lamb. In other words, no one's to miss out. Every single person in every household of the Israelites is to do this to make sure that everybody has part of the lamb. Uh, Your lamb or kid shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall each kill his lamb in the evening. They shall take the blood and put it on the two side posts and on the lintel above the door space and of the houses in which they shall eat the Passover lamb. Are you starting to see something here that's reminiscent of what we've sung about today, what communion was about? 
This is where we start to see Jesus, our Passover lamb. Everything in the Old Testament leads to Jesus. Every part of it is a prototype, if you like, the characters. Uh, you know, today I feel a bit like Moses. I said that to you yesterday. I, when I came into ministry, I didn't volunteer. I, I didn't jump. I was pushed. And so, you know, as I said, I know how, why Moses was so reluctant when God started to move him into being the, uh, the deliverer. Okay, so let's keep going. Okay, so we've, we've got that established. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted and un, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted its head, its legs and its inner parts. There'll be nothing left. Let's move on a little bit down to, okay, uh, verse 11. And this is where God's starting to impress, impress upon them that I'm about to move. He tells them how they go, not only how to cook it, how to pre- prepare the blood over their doorway. Now he says, and you shall eat it thus, as if, and this is in the Amplified, as fully prepared for a journey. Your loins girded your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So what does that actually mean? You know, for a long time, when I was a new Christian, I sort of thought, oh, it's all about the devil. You know, everything's about the devil. He's the bad guy. And yes, he is. Let's make no bones about it. He doesn't like you and I. He doesn't like God. But the whole thing is, this is God's wrath that's about to come over. This is all about coming back to that piece of fruit that was eaten that from the tree of, uh, of uh, good and evil. And so here we go. Uh, this is another I will. Verse, uh, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, proving their helplessness. I am the Lord. So in other words, anybody who's not under the covering of the blood is going to be in big trouble. There's going to be a crying in every household that doesn't have the covering. Verse 13, the blood shall be, the to- uh, shall be for a token of a sign to you on the doorposts. The houses where you are, that when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be to you for a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations and keep it as an ordinance forever. In the celebration of the Passover in future years, and it goes on to talk about the unleavened bread. And that's a message for another day. But it does go on, it talks about the assembly. You know, the people of, of Israel now are united in the fact that God is about to rescue them. You know, we know that a little bit further on, uh, we've come to the part where Pharaoh actually said, so uh, come down with me to verse 29 in uh, Exodus 12. It says, at midnight, the Lord slew every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. He called for Moses and Aaron and said, 
Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the Israelites. Go and serve your God as you said. And so all of a sudden, this stubborn man who wouldn't budge with every single unpleasant thing that happened to he and his people, all of a sudden now is giving them exactly what they need, telling them to go. Now, a little bit further along, we, we, we know that they come to the Red Sea, etc., etc. And, you know, with that, that's a whole other story. But let's have a look at it now. Let's have a look at our Passover lamb. And Sue was talking about this this morning when we had, uh, you know... Uh, communion this morning. So back in Jeremiah, God tells the people that there's going to be a new covenant. So if you've got your Bibles there with you, can you open them up please at Jeremiah 31? And let's have a look. Uh, As we know, Jeremiah was a very unpopular prophet. He brought news that the people didn't really want to hear. Uh, Back in verse 30, let's start there. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats sour grapes his own teeth shall be set on edge. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and and to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke Although I was his husband, says the Lord. Their husband, sorry. Verse 33. And this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them. And on their hearts, I will write it. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. Now, you know, the good news for you and I is it's not restricted to Israel. There was a time when the covenants that God made were really just for Israel. But all of a sudden, Jeremiah is starting to talk about a covenant that is not only going to be for the people of Israel and Judah, it's going to be a covenant that is going to include all of us. It's going to be a covenant where the blood of the ultimate Passover land, uh, lamb, I should say, is going to provide something that the lamb blood could not. You know, that was a temporary solution. We know that as God went on to give the law and when he went on to, you know, give them all the different ways that they were to uh, use the ritual of, you know, the, the blood of lambs and rams and sheep and doves and no cats. I'll mention that. There were no cats mentioned on any list I could find. But, you know, uh, all these things that went on for centuries So 15 centuries after all of this has happened, when Exodus has happened, the first Passover, all of a sudden, God is going to bring in a whole new covenant. And that covenant is going to be something that you and I should be grateful for every single day. So let's flip over to some very well-known scriptures, and this is where we're going to end up today. And we see Jesus, you know, Jesus born um, so humbly, Jesus born and and again, a little like Moses, he has a period where it would seem he's away from everything. He's just a regular Jewish guy, a carpenter, just being raised by regular parents. But as we know, Jesus was the deliverer of all deliverers. He is ultimate, preeminent in every single way, in everything, because he is the one who is going to come to do what the blood of rams and sheep and goats and everything else you can think of 
could not do. He is going to provide the ultimate solution for us. He is going to pay our debt once and for all. The other was just a covering. It just kept people going from year to year. The people experienced, yes, the blessing of atonement, but there was no real remission of their sins because it was temporary. This is going to be total remission. You and I now can exercise our free will like we have never before. We have choice. Yes, we can still choose to sin. I'm going to use that unpopular word a few times, so brace yourself. But the whole thing is we can, we can still you know, go about, we can be who we were before, or we can actually look to our Passover lamb who was sinless, who lived our life, experienced our temptations, went to the cross so that you and I could now have a choice about the power of sin. He gives us the Holy Spirit. I say to my grandchildren, before you hit your brother or sister or call them an unpleasant name because they've upset you, there'll be two voices in your head. Listen to the one that's not going to get you into trouble with mum and dad and God. (laughs) You know, because as I said, what we want to do and what we know we should do, we now have somebody, a divine part of the Godhead, who is going to speak to us and he's going to help us to make the right choice. But none of that could happen without what's about to happen now. So we know that Jesus sends his disciples out to prepare for what they think, no doubt, is going to be just a regular Passover. You know, special, the bitter herbs to remind them about the their terrible enslavement, the oppression and everything that they'd experienced as slaves because this is being passed down. Remember, God told them this is the ordinance that they're going to keep for generations and they did for 15 centuries. They kept this. They were faithful to that. And, you know, this is how you you have someone that presides. If you go to a Jewish Passover, the father of the house or whoever is the senior member presides over the, the Passover, and he will tell stories. He will, you know, about how God brought them out with his mighty hand out of Egypt. He will also tell, you know, explain to the children, answer their questions, because what they're doing is wanting to keep that memorial. Now, Jesus is going to give us something better to remember. So let's have a look. He's about to change the narrative of what they're expecting. And he says to them, I have earnestly and intensely desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall not eat, I I shall eat no more until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And we know he takes the cup and when he had given thanks, he said, divide this and distribute it amongst yourselves. For when I say to you that now I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine at all until the kingdom of God comes... Verse 19, then he took a loaf of bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in a like manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is is the New Testament or covenant ratified in my blood, which is shed, poured out for you. And behold, the hand of the one, we won't worry about going on about Judas at this moment. So verse 22, for the Son of God is going going as it was determined and appointed and woe to the man by whom he is betrayed and delivered up. Now, 
You know, really, I, I was listening to a, a particularly good sermon this morning and it was about faith. And I thought to myself, I thought that he made an interest, the gentleman in question made an interesting statement. He said, is your faith in faith or is it in the object of your faith? And it got me thinking and I, I thought to myself, I thought, it's not what is the object of my faith, it's who is the object of my faith. And so I'm going to end with this. Uh, you know, Jesus came with a specific mission, and that was to be our deliverer. You know, he's our redeemer, he's our saviour. He, you know, he's somebody who gave us something that you and I couldn't earn. He gave us something that now is unchangeable. If we receive the gift of salvation and begin on that journey, we might feel like we're in the wilderness, and for people who are new to the faith, maybe it all seems very confusing. But the thing is, once you make Jesus the object of your love, once he is on your throne of your heart, once he is that person who you recognise was the only answer. And he tells us that, doesn't he? In John 14, sorry, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one, that's no one, no one. You know, God doesn't muck around with words. As I said, when he says, I will, You can bet your boots he's going to do it. When he says no one can come through to him in any way, shape or form, it doesn't matter how successful you are. You can be down there praying till you've got, you know, calluses on your knees or whatever. But if Jesus is not the object of your love and adoration, if he is not on the throne of your heart, sorry about that, you know, really, if he is not the object of your faith, You know, I I know it sounds a little bit harsh, but it really spoke to me this morning when he said, is your faith in faith or is your faith in Jesus Christ? And I thought to myself, I thought, you know, when you have that assurance, when you have, you know that you know that you know that you know that the Passover lamb has done what he came to do, we can have joy in our hearts, we can be assured And faith and assurance are two different things. Faith comes from when we accept it. You know, it is the substance of things hoped for, that not yet seen. You know, we don't know what's beyond that, but I am, for one, am willing to trust the one who was willing to come and give up his life on the cross to bear the shame of a terrible death by crucifixion so that I could walk free. I tell you, that blood that was shed at the cross. That is amazing. It is amazing. It is priceless. And then as we we heard this morning, the resurrection. We share in the resurrection, you guys. How amazing is that? Yet that same spirit that rose Christ from the dead now lives in us. You know, how can you not be filled with joy? How can you not put your faith in Jesus Christ when he has done what he's done? And you know, God's not distant. God came and was prepared to live among us. God gives us his word every single day. You know, do you open your Bible every day? I'm going to throw out some challenges here and I'm throwing them out to myself too. 
you know, there are mornings when, you know, it's raining and I, I hear the alarm go off. That's the cat at 4.30. She sits at the door. There, another cat moment. Uh, she sits at the door, meow, 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 you know. And what she's saying to me is, come and feed me, really. It's all self-centred. But, you know, that's my alarm clock. And, you know, there are days when I think to myself, oh, it would be nice to stay in bed. And then I feel the, the compelling love of Christ and I feel that desire, that hunger, that thirst that only comes from really loving Jesus Christ. And I say to myself, you lazy thing, get out of bed. I'll probably say it a bit more harshly than that. But, you know, and I get up and I go and God's got something precious and wonderful in his word for me to do. You know, sometimes even as I'm walking down the hallway, there's a beautiful word that just pops into my head that I know is the Holy Spirit. And, you know, you, that, this isn't just fanciful stuff. This is not, you know, sort of sitting under a, what do you call it, a pyramid or whatever, a triangle and, and sort of going on. This, this is because we now have the one who is our ultimate Passover lamb living in us with, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to challenge you. Karen, would you mind just playing something gentle in the background? I just want to want to say to you, you know, the, the, lamb, the Passover lamb once that only gave a covering now not only gives you the covering from God's wrath, but he has empowered you to, and he is challenging you today to make him the object of your love, to make you think, can he be the object of your faith? And so I don't need anybody to come forward unless you particularly want prayer today. But I would invite you just for a minute as Karen plays, just bow your head and just sit in your chair and just reflect, you know, how I've lived without God in my life and I've lived with God in my life. And I've got to tell you, the difference is amazing. So let's just reflect for a moment about the goodness of our God, the love of our Saviour, and the ultimate place that you and I now occupy in God's family. You are a child of God because of the ultimate Passover lamb. So thank you all. And uh, as I said, just let God speak to your heart as Karen prays. Father, I just pray as we conclude this meeting and we go out to enjoy fellowship that we would not forget for one moment that the greatest fellowship ever purchased was purchased by the Passover lamb, by that that precious and divine shedding of blood that each one of us now has been set free because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We are free now to choose you in everything we do, every word, every action. And Lord, I pray that every heart would make you the object of their love, the object of their faith, that they would just long and hunger to be able to just dwell in your word, to listen to your voice in all things that we do, and that we would no longer be wilderness walkers, but instead where we would be true worshippers, worshippers that worship in spirit and truth. Not just lip service, Lord. Please don't let us fall into that trap. We want to be those 
whose love for you is just all-encompassing, just as yours was for us. And so this day, Lord, as we go about what we need to do, and for those who are coming back tonight to worship, I pray that our hearts would just be overflowing with love and a desire to just draw into greater intimacy with you because you are our Passover lamb. And now we live in the promise, the assurance of that faith, and we could not have this if it wasn't for our beautiful Saviour, Jesus Christ. So as we close, it is in his mighty name and no other name because it is the name above every other name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.